What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Mount Everest is situated in the Himalayan mountains and stands 29,032 feet in the air. It is the highest known point on earth. Just for your information, that height translates to being just under five and a half miles high. It is equivalent to the size of 20 Empire State Buildings stacked on top of each other. So, needless to say, it is one high piece of real estate. And as you very well know, many Adventure junkies have set out on expeditions to try to hike all the way to the very peak. And some, in their attempts to travel to the very summit, have met their tragic end. Through various epidemics such as avalanches, cool weather, or falling to their unfortunate demise. However... For the most fortunate climbers who have had the privileged opportunity to travel to the lofty height, they need around three months to accomplish it. Now, I'm sure you might have been on a hike before, and you might have gone up five and a half miles, but you got to understand, this is unlike any other hike you've ever been on. Traveling up to that height in our world in the earth is very detrimental to you physically, emotionally, to your lungs, to your mind, everything about it. It is challenging. So to, in addition to those three months that takes to climb to the top, you also need on average between eight to 12 months to prepare mentally, physically, and spiritually for the great hike. Now I'm sure you probably have never desired to go on that hike, but the travel junkie or hiking junkie would seek to do that, such as David Allen Hahn, who's 62 years of age, an American citizen. He, in fact, is a, an American professional mountain guide, ski patroller, journalist, and lecturer who actually reached the summit for his 15th time back in 2013. And he holds the record for the most finishes by an American citizen. Now, to my shocking surprise, there are two other people who have hiked to the top of Mount Everest more than him. A United Kingdom national hiked 17 times, and a Nepalese national, who's a a citizen of Nepal, hiked this year, back in May, his 28th time to the top. Think about how many years of his life have been devoted to the trek of climbing to that top peak. I share all that to say this. That, oh, actually, by the way, the guy who went 28 times, I don't know why I decided to do the math, but I did. And that is over 800,000 feet of elevation gain that he did. Well, I say all that to say this, that just as Mount Everest 
That just as no other mountain, whether you go to Mill Mountain, Roanoke Mountain, Peakwood, Bentwood, or whatever uh, mountain you might go to, there is no other mountain on the earth that compares to the height of Mount Everest. And Isaiah has been compared to Mount Everest because as you think about all these other prophets in the Old Testament, whether it's Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Daniel or Malachi or whoever, they're just little old mountains compared to the big Mount Everest of Isaiah's prophecy. Warren Wearsby said it like this, like Mount Everest, Isaiah 53 stands out in beauty and grandeur, but only because it reveals Jesus Christ and takes us to Mount Calvary. As we come to Isaiah 53, obviously we're in 52 today, but I want to remind you that the chapter and verse markings did not occur in our English Bible until 1560 when the Geneva Bible was published. And so for some 1500 years, the church of God prior to the English Bible did not have the luxury of the chapter and verse hittings. And so the reality is this fourth song of the servant that Isaiah is delivering to us begins in chapter 52 verse 13 and goes down to chapter 53 verse 20 verse 2 verse 12 excuse me and so that is we see that Isaiah is preaching and prophesying and he reveals four songs about the Messiah and this is the last one the the most revered one and so the title of my message today or really the next several uh, messages is Isaiah's song of Christmas here it is in this passage, we are going to discover the Christmas story. It is in these 15 verses that we are going to see Isaiah's mind focusing on the first advent in an extraordinary way. But before we get into this song, I want to share with you, the book of Isaiah has been divided into two major sections, chapters 1 through 39, which is an emphasis about law and condemnation. And then chapters 40 through 66, which is an emphasis on grace, hope, and consolation or salvation. Now what's interesting is the Old Testament has 39 books and the primary focus of the Old Testament is law and the justice of God towards Israel. But in chapters 40 through 66 is 27 chapters and what's interestingly enough is the New Testament is 20, makes up of 27 books and the primary focus of the New Testament or the New Covenant is grace, hope, and love found in salvation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 40 of Isaiah emphasizes the coming of this one we would know as John the Baptist. And the New Testament and Gospel of Matthew and Luke and Mark and John emphasizes John the Baptist comes on the scene to prepare the way of the Messiah. And so there's so many parallels with Isaiah's writing about the entire canon of Scripture. And it is in this passage we see that Isaiah is pointing the world, not just the Israelites, not just the Gentile nation surrounding Israel in his day, but pointing the world of the promised hope in the Messiah. And so that being said, I want to share with you one key thought from today's message. And if you leave with anything from these three verses, this is the sermon in a nutshell. Jesus Christ was God's anointed Messiah who was exalted, humiliated, and proclaimed before all. Jesus Christ was God's anointed Messiah who was exalted, humiliated, and proclaimed before all. Now before we dive into this particular text, I want to also share with you that Isaiah is writing to the people of Israel 
who have rejected God. And as a result, God brought the Assyrian nation upon them to lay the northern tribes into captivity. And will later on, about a hundred years after Isaiah, Babylon would come and take hold upon the southern kingdom of Israel. But it's in this section when Isaiah is giving us hope found in one central character. And his name is Jesus. And now this statement right here might confuse you. Because I'm using Jesus Christ in a different light of God. But the phrase, the, the name Jesus Christ is a reference to the second person of the triune God. That is God the Son. The word God here in this statement is a reference to the Father. And so the whole concept of Jesus Christ being God's anointed Messiah, it just simply means that Jesus is the bodily manifestation of God incarnate. In other words, remember what Isaiah said back in chapter 7? That this Messiah would be called Emmanuel. And the name Emmanuel means God with us. So to deny the fact that Jesus is God incarnate is to deny the fact that he is God's anointed Messiah. That being said, I want to ask this question today. What exactly is Isaiah teaching us about God's anointed Messiah? Well, it is in this particular text that I believe that he's going to unpack the details of the Messiah. Now, before we dive any further, I just want you to know that this is, concerning prophecy, the Mount Everest passage of Bible prophecy. This text, from what I am told, is alluded to and referenced at least 41 times in the New Testament. And it is the most quoted passage, that is the most quoted chapter in the entirety of the New Testament. So this is the Mount Everest of Bible prophecy. Isaiah is God's spokesman, his Old Testament evangelist, heralding forth the good news of the Messiah. And today we're going to see from verses 13 that about this Messiah's exaltation. In verse 14, the Messiah's humiliation. And verse number 15, we're going to see the Messiah's proclamation. That there's a time in the past and even right now where the Messiah has been exalted. There was a time in the past when the Messiah was humiliated. And a time in the past and in the present when the Messiah is being proclaimed claimed by those who believe him to be the Messiah. Now that being said, may I draw your attention down to verse 13? I want to share with you one of three thoughts right now. And from verse 13, consider this, the exaltation of God's anointed Messiah. The exaltation of God's anointed Messiah is found in verse number 13. Notice the word behold. Would you say that with me? Behold. Say it again. Behold. One more time. Behold. This gives the idea that God through Isaiah is saying, I need your undivided attention in this very moment for what I'm about to tell you. And he says, my servant. Now I want to pause and just say that the word servant in the context of Isaiah can mean several different things. It can mean Isaiah himself. At times, Isaiah is referred to as the servant of God. 
It can mean the nation of Israel. There are times when in the context of Isaiah's writing that Israel is being referred to as a servant. At times it can refer to Hezekiah as a, as a national king of the people of God in the Old Testament that, that the term servant is at times referring to him. At times it's referring to a, a Gentile king named Cyrus who God raised up and used him as his servant. But I want you to know this. That in the context of these four servant songs, it's not about any of those people that I mentioned or did not mention. It's not even about you or me. We, in a sense, are his servant today. Servants of the most high God. But this reference to behold my servant is a reference to the Messiah. Now check this out. For centuries and centuries and centuries before the time of Christ. Remember Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus. So the, the, the Jewish scholars prior to the days of Christ believed that Isaiah 52 and 53 was about you know who? The Messiah. And then it was not until at least 1050 AD when the Jewish scholars decided this passage is no longer about the Messiah. It is about the people of Israel. But I just want to just share this with you. How could this text be about the national state of Israel in the context of a nation dying on behalf for somebody else? Then check this out. That that. This passage, today, if you would go to a Jewish synagogue all over the world, and they would have a time when they read from the Old Testament, they would read from the scroll of Isaiah for centuries and centuries, they would get to this passage, and they would read Isaiah 52 all the way to the end, and they would go into Isaiah 53 and read the entirety of it, but I came across this tragic reality that because of the nature and division amongst scholars, the Jewish people as a whole in their meetings get to halfway through Isaiah 52 and they stop reading and they skip chapter 53 and they do not begin reading until chapter 54. I say all this to say this, that we need to love the Jewish people in the context of God's love for them. That God wants all nations, including Israel, to come to faith in the Messiah. And in this passage, listen, for centuries upon century, church history is on our side, Jewish history is on our side, that Isaiah 52 verse 13 is a reference to God's anointed Messiah named Jesus. Not the nation of Israel or not anybody else. And so he says, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. This is a phrase to remind us that the Messiah will act in all of his dealings and associations and in his relationships in a very wise and prudent manner. So I just said it like this. The Messiah's prudence will be exalted. The wisdom that, that Jesus showed on the earth far exceeded our wisdom. Jesus was just a little young lad when he was there amongst the scholars of his day in the temple um, conversing with them about the Old Testament. And they were amazed at the wisdom of this little young boy. He dealt wisely. 
And as a result of his wisdom, we now understand that just as the people of all the earth came across lands to see the wisdom of Solomon, people all in the Judea, Galilean area would come from afar to hear the wisdom of this one named Jesus. And so today we understand that we exalt him because he was the wise servant of God. But then I want to draw your attention now to the second phrase in our text. It says, he shall be exalted. This phrase just is a simple reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we'll get into the cross in verse 14. And remember the Jewish mind is not a chronological mind like ours. So they'll jump here and here and anywhere. They're not trying to walk through the exact stage from the first year of Christ all the way to the ending. They just kind of have a spot here and a spot here. And so this exaltation is coming before the humiliation. Even though we understand that the humiliation came before the exaltation. But it's a reference right here that not just that Jesus died, but that Jesus conquered death 2,000 years ago. And so we have to understand that the Messiah's obedience will be exalted. That Jesus was exalted above every other name because he humbled himself and obeyed the Father's will. And so we should do likewise. I came to Isaiah 53 all these years. All these years in this particular chapter of 52 and 53, thinking that the, the whole emphasis of this passage was, was the incarnation with the cross in view. Well, it is the incarnation with the cross in view, but also his resurrection and ascension. And so later in chapter 53, we will discover how it is a, a reference to the resurrection also. And so as we come to chapter 53, we need to understand that, that this is about, yes, the first advent. But the first advent of Christ did not stay wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. He came in a manger so he could go to the cross. And he rose again. And so he shall be exalted and extolled. He will be praised for his obedience all the way to death. But then verse 13 it says, and he will be very high. So the word extol here is, is a reference to his extension. How when he was resurrected, he stayed on the earth for about 40 days. And then the disciples, they watched him go up into the clouds and disappear. And that's a reference here that he was extolled. He was lifted up in a praiseworthy fashion. But then the phrase where it says that he will be very high is a reference that now he is seated at the very most high right hand of God the Father. In other words, that is a figure of speech meaning that he is God and he's seated on his throne. Remember in the Caesar mentality that if Caesar would allow somebody to sit at his right hand, he was giving them authority to act in his name. And whatever that person did, Caesar was responsible of doing. And so the concept of Jesus being at the right hand of the Father is that Jesus is God on his throne. And so we see that the Messiah's magnificence will be exalted. And he is exalted. He is. And you know, you can exalt him with your life today by living for him. You can exalt him by serving him today, by following the Lord's example and obeying God's word over your life. 
The exaltation of God's anointed Messiah is the greatest exaltation the world has ever seen. Jesus Christ was God's anointed Messiah who was exalted, humiliated, and proclaimed before all. But may I draw your attention now as we seek to understand what else Isaiah is teaching us from this passage about the anointed Messiah? Look at verse 14. It is in verse 14 that we see, secondly, the humiliation of God's anointed Messiah. Now, verse 13 introduces us, and 14 and 15 introduces us to the entire content of chapter 53. So verses 13 through 15 is a summarization of the incarnation of Christ. Then verses 1 through 12 of 53 unpacks the remaining details. But verse 14 draws us prior to the resurrection and the ascension and Christ seated at the right hand of God. And focuses on the details of his first coming. Yes, I am aware that this verse 14 doesn't specifically mention the beginning of the Christmas story, but it is assumed upon. Because it was incarnation, we know that he came and was born in Bethlehem. And so check this out. The humiliation of Christ is going to remind us that everywhere he went, people were divided over him. People either bowed their knee and worshiped him as God incarnate or they shook their fists at him and demanded his blasphemous ways to be crucified. And then he was brutally beaten and horrifically sacrificed. That's what this verse teaches. Let's look at this. It says, as many as were astonished. That's an old Word that just simply means astonished. They were mesmerized. They were marveled by what they saw. And the context here implies they were, they were not moved with marvel to worship him. They were moved with marvel, with envy over him, seeking to make him a dead man walking. But I will say this, that as those uh, people in his day, they marveled by watching his miracles of the five loaves and two, two fishes um, being turned and fed to the multitudes by him walking on water, by him calling out those from the grave, by him healing those who were sick. They would see all these miracles and they were moved to believe that he was the anointed son of God. But then others were moved with charging him with blasphemy, saying he declared him to be equal with God. He deserves death. And so this astonishment is not a good astonishment. Just as we would be taken back and moved if we ever peaked the top of Mount Everest and we would see God's amazing creation. They're looking and they're moved in another way of seeking his life. And they did that. They conspired to have him killed and they succeeded. But all within the providential plan of God. And so the Messiah's presence was humiliating. Everywhere he went, he was either praised or humiliated. Praised by the believers, humiliated by the unbelievers. And, and haven't you realized that humanity has not changed today? People are still doing that on any continent you can go to. No matter what religion people are practicing, they either magnify the ways of Christ or they want the ways of Christ to be removed from all of history. 
But the verse goes on to speak about his countenance and his appearance. The word visage is an old English word that just simply means his appearance or his countenance. It was marred, a word that we don't really use a whole lot. In fact, there's a lot of words in this particular passage that we don't use a lot. And, and just food for thought, this is not the most easiest text to translate in the Old Testament. From what I am told by people who know a whole lot more about Hebrew than I do. But it says his visage, his countenance was marred more than any other man. This just simply means that the Messiah's appearance was humiliating. His face, after the Roman soldiers were finished with him, he was unrecognizable. Now, I want you to, to just consider this. This verse right here is a supposed proof text for people to come to and say that Jesus was an ugly man because of this verse right here. Now, I don't know about that. I wasn't there. I didn't see him. I don't know. But what I do know is that Jesus did not come with the pomp and circumstance that the Jewish people were expecting the Messiah to come with. That is the royal attire, the royal countenance, the royaltiness of somebody like a king. He was born in a barn, a manger. He wasn't born in a palace. He was a carpenter. He wasn't some person ruling on a throne. He was a humble person. And here this passage, I don't believe it's referencing his beauty of his countenance. It could be. But I think the better understanding of this verse is the fact that after they got done whipping him and beating him at the stake, he was no longer even considered to be humane because he was so distorted in his countenance and his appearance. He was beaten almost to death. And as a result, his own family, his own followers who knew him intimately couldn't even recognize him. What a death. What a sacrifice. This, his visage was so marred more than any man. Giving us the idea that he did not even look like a man anymore after they were done with him. But then it goes on to say, and his form more than the sons of man. So beginning with his countenance and then transitioning to the rest of his body. That, that this was not just a beating that, that he would receive on his facial countenance and his appearance. But it would be a sacrifice that would entail his entire body. Mental, physical being, being poured out on the cross. So we see the Messiah's presence was humiliating. His appearance was humiliating. But then the Messiah's sacrifice was also humiliating. This is something that we're all very accustomed to today. We understand the sacrifice that Jesus had to go through. Laying down his life for you and me so that our sin debt could be paid. It was on the cross when Jesus collided with the very wrath of God so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God for all eternity. So, so, the, so here's the situation. The choice is yours. You either choose to accept the wrath that Jesus bore on the cross or you choose to accept the fact that you will have to, you have to bear the wrath of God for all eternity in a devil's hell. That's the facts. That's what scripture teaches. And the good news of the gospel is that God's arms are open wide 
to the whole world. His call of salvation is to Gentiles and Jewish people alike, saying, come unto me, all you who are uh, weary and full of labor and find rest. He says, whoever calls upon the name of God shall be delivered from their sins. So I invite you in this moment, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you need to know him. Because it is through the cross where you can be delivered by the atoning work of God's anointed Messiah. He was humiliated. He was exalted. Yes. But he is also proclaimed. What else is Isaiah teaching us about the anointed Messiah? Well, it's not just about his exaltation and humiliation, but it's thirdly, the proclamation of God's anointed Messiah. Verse 13 opens the window for us to see Jesus being exalted for the glory of the Father. Verse 14 opens another window so we can see the humiliation of God's Son on our behalf so that we can experience His grace and love. But verse 15 opens another window so we can see that once God gave his people the promise of a Messiah, they begin to share that promise through the proclamation of preaching and teaching. So look at verse 15. In verse 15, we're going to see how this salvation of Christ is going to be proclaimed, how the reputation of Christ is being proclaimed, and how the condemnation of Christ is being proclaimed, not just in the days of Isaiah, but all the way till now and until kingdom come. Verse 15, I like how it begins. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Now this word for sprinkle is a similar word in the Hebrew language that is utilized in the Old Testament Torah, you know, like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, about how the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat. Now, I'm reminded of this fact, how that when Jesus died on the cross, he was innocent, his blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat of God at the cross so that those who believe in him can be, can be forgiven. And here, I'm reminded that, that this particular sprinkling is not just for the Jewish people alone. But notice it says nations, plural. Gentiles and Jews alike have the opportunity to experience God's saving redemption through the atoning blood sacrifice of Christ. And there he was sprinkled. There is a fountain filled with blood as the songwriter spoke about. And his blood was spilt on Calvary's cross for you and me. So his salvation is being proclaimed from this particular part. And we are called to be engaged in that declaration. We don't really have these criers anymore. And I'm not talking about, you know, somebody crying with tears. I'm talking about somebody bearing the newspapers and delivering them to homes. In the ancient world, they didn't have that sophisticated process that we do today, where somebody hops in a mailman vehicle and drives and delivers our mail to our house. They had somebody who was known as a public crier 
who would come into the streets and a public area and herald forth the news on behalf of a king. And my friends, we serve a king greater than Caesar. His name is Jesus. And Jesus, if you're saved, you have been chosen to be involved into the work of sharing the gospel in some way, shape, or form. And here we see that. Then it goes on to say that the kings shall shut their mouths at him for that which had not been told them shall they see. I think about this concept of the Messiah's reputation will be proclaimed. How, yes, he offers salvation, but he's also the perfect, sinless, spotless, sovereign son of God who came and lived an amazing life. And the people who did not hear him or hear of him these rulers who think they're all that and bad to the bone will realize when Jesus comes again in verse 15, I think is a sense and a reference to the second coming in a sense, coming in the clouds, all the world, even the rulers will see him as he is the righteous potentate king of kings and his reputation will be known to all. All will bow before him. All will say, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus, you are king. You know, it's one thing to just make a statement that he is king. And it's another thing to humbly bow before him and say, Jesus, you are my king and I'm here to serve you. But my question for you is this. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe all that's cracked up to believe about him from the scriptures? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Or are you going to be like those, those people when they came to, to, when Jesus came to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say this, some say that. Do you say that he's just a wise teacher who said good things? Do you say that he was a great leader? Do you say that he was just a figment of man's imagination and he never existed? Well, to declare that is to be an utter fool to deny all aspects of history, how all of history is actually not pointing to America, but it's pointing back to this guy we named Jesus. I wonder, what do you say? Well, whatever you think of him now, one day, if you don't believe that he is the son of God, one day you will. And it will be in this moment when they that had not heard shall consider him. There, we will see him in the full pomp and circumstance in the very age to come. When he splits the eastern sky and, and, and we understand that the angelic host will be with him and the church will be with him as well. And there we will get to see him in all the glory and splendor like a righteous king would have. And all people and nations and tribes and kindreds will behold him. But it will be in that moment when it'll be far too late for many. And so I urge you today to behold him now as God's anointed Messiah. As we come to a conclusion today, I want to share with you, I referenced earlier how this chapter, this section of Isaiah is alluded to or quoted to from what I am told at least 41 times. I have not gone out and checked that out. But what I did find, I found 10 specific references that I just want to relay to you today. We're not going to go through these in detail. 
But in chapter 52 and verse 15, it speaks about how they will understand. It is in verse 15 that we understand Paul is teaching that this passage is a proclamation of all the world understanding the gospel at some point, and, and they will one day. Some will understand it in this life, and some will understand it when it's too late. But we see how, how John and Paul references Isaiah 53.1, who has believed our report. How in Matthew chapter 8, he is the one who would carry our diseases. Remember, diseases, illnesses, sickness is, is actually part of the fallenness and sinfulness of man. And so our bodies, when we get sick, it is a result of our fallen Adamic nature. And Jesus, when he died, yes, he died on the cross for our sins, but he died for all aspects of the fallen nature of humanity, including disease. And one day, he will make all of that right again. And there will be an age of no death and no disease. By his stripes, Peter quotes Isaiah and says, we are healed. In the book of Acts, there, Philip is talking with the Ethiopian eunuch, and he speaks about how by his stripes, we are healed from Isaiah's writing. And he goes on to speak about how he was cut off from among the living. In other words, how he would die. He committed no sin as Peter quoted Isaiah. And as Mark and Luke said, he was numbered with the transgressors. So I just want to invite you. If you've never climbed the Mount Everest of the book of Isaiah, you should. If you've never read it, I want to urge you this Christmas season... Read it. If you just read three chapters a day, you can read it in about a month. It's not that, it's not as long as you think uh, that it is. And listen, how do you climb Mount Everest? One step at a time. How do you read the book of Isaiah and study it? One word at a time. One phrase at a time. One sentence at a time. One chapter at a time. One verse at a time. And then you read it as a whole. So I invite you, this Christmas season, to consider what Martin Luther said, that great reformer of the Protestant Reformation. He said this. He said, every Christian should memorize Isaiah 53, including the sec section we just read. All I'm saying is that we need to devote more time to this Mount Everest passage and prophecy. And we will this Christmas. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.